Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side -side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the diagnosis and treatment of sarcomas with Dr. Gary Friedlander. Dr. Friedlander is the Wayne O. Southwick Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation and Professor of Pathology at the Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgery at Yale and the Assistant Director for Global Oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So Gary, tell me a little bit more about uh, sarcomas and, and musculoskeletal tumors in general. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, first, first, let me define the subspecialty of musculoskeletal oncology. It's the group of us who are interested in the diagnosis, treatment of people who have uh, tumors of the musculoskeletal system. That system reflects bones, muscles, joints, support ligaments, things of that nature. I am an orthopedic surgeon by training. Very early, I became interested in tumors in oncology. And parenthetically, if I jump between the use of the term tumor, lesion, mass, lump, bump, I'm really referring to basically the same thing. It's, it's the modification of that term that indicates whether we're talking about something that's relatively harmless or something that's relatively aggressive. So along the way, re reflecting my interest, I took some additional training in both uh, clinical care and research related to oncology. And like you, I'm a surgeon at heart. So, you know, when we think about bone cancers, it really seems to me that we talk about two different kind of buckets of bone cancers. We talk about cancers that start in bone or start in ligaments and muscles and various other aspects of the musculoskeletal system. And then we talk about cancers that go to bone, because bone tends to be a place that cancers like to go to. Absolutely. Uh, primary tumors that start in bone are one bucket, and that universe of tumors that feel welcome to come to bone as metastasis are another. And there are probably 100 times more metastatic tumors to bone than there are primary so that one person telling another his or her experience with bone cancer immediately makes me wonder if it's primary, if you will, or metastatic disease, because they are very, very different. So because, you know, I think we hear a lot more about uh, cancers that have metastasized to bone, let's talk a little bit more about cancers that start in bone, because that's really where your expertise uh, really lies. Tell us more about what kinds of cancers start in the bone or, or joints or muscles or ligaments, how common they are, and who is affected? Very, very important uh, distinctions to be made. Uh, one is, in the field of cancer, Lumps, bumps, lesions, tumors happen because cells lose control over themselves and their growth, and they cross a line at some point to become malignant. 
and we'll leave it at that for the for the time being. Many of those cells are 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 cells we call epithelioid in nature. They're lining cells. They're they're the cells on our skin. They're the cells that line our gastrointestinal tract, our glands in the breast, in in the thymus and thyroid and uh, other parts of the body, and those are called carcinomas. They are nearly a hundred times more common than sarcomas, cells that start uh, tumors that start in cells of a mesenchymal origin. They are connective tissue or support cells, bone, cartilage, muscle, fat, blood vessels to some degree. Those are the sarcomas. So if it's in the bone, the term is osteo, they're osteosarcomas. If they're of cartilage origin, they're chondro for cartilage, chondrosarcomas. But as I said, they're, they're the sarcomas are about 1% of all cancers. Do they affect certain populations more than others? They do, as is true of many different lumps and bumps and cancers uh, in terms of age and in terms of other demographic characteristics. There are some tumors that are very relatively very common in kids and relatively uncommon in adults. Uh, an example of that would be osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma. The, the, the predictions are not completely uh, held to, but, but by and large there are some things you see far more often in kids than adults. On the other hand, um, chondrosarcomas and some of the muscle sarcomas are much more common in adults. Multiple myeloma, you could argue, is either a, a primary bone cancer or a cancer that happens to reside in bone. So, you know, in a lot of cancers, we talk about risk factors. So, for example, in, in lung cancer, we say one of the main risk factors is smoking. What are some of the risk factors, or are there really risk factors that cause sarcomas? There are, but they're getting to be less common in the traditional sense. People who are exposed to radiation, for example, either on purpose or otherwise, are more susceptible to forming certain kinds of cancers and sarcomas in particular. Uh, that could have been living uh, on top of a source of natural radiation, or it could have been because they were required radiation treatment to remove another form of, of cancer. There are, uh, there are uh, racial or ethnic uh, biases, if you will, towards or against certain cancers. Ewing's cancer, Ewing's sarcoma in young children, a primary cancer of bone, primary sarcoma of bone, is far more common in European whites than it is in uh, Africans of uh, people of color. But we're also learning that genetics plays a role. Uh, genetics probably plays a role in susceptibility to some degree, and it probably plays a very, very important role in our evolving efforts to diagnose and more so to treat Cancer. So we're learning far more about the genetics of oncology today than, than ever before. Very encouraging. When we talk about genetics, many people may think about 
understanding their family history. For example, in breast cancer, we know that if you have a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer or prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer, that those tend to cluster into forming uh, families that may have a mutation in particular genes, for example, the BRCA1 or 2 gene. So are you saying that people should know their family history and that there are particular genes that may be involved in the formation of sarcomas? And if so, what does that family history cluster look like? So what should people be aware of in terms of looking at their family history to say, aha, I might, I might be at risk? I think there are two different ways for me to interpret the question and answer it. One is it's always a good idea to know as much as you can about yourself and your family, period. There are not, at the present time, very likely genetic clusters in families that predict sarcomas. I'll give you one example to the contrary, multiple osteochondromatosis or Olea's disease, uh, multiple enchondromatosis. People generally have one of these tumors one, and they're benign, cartilage and bone. There are people that by uh, genetics and in a hereditary sense have multiple, have dozens if not hundreds of these growths. Those people are more susceptible to those benign tumors transitioning to aggressive and malignant tumors. But that's unusual. I, I always had trouble with multiple choice tests. I could always think of the exception. And so I don't want to overblow this a, a, as a concern. And there are many people with multiple lesions like this that do extremely well. But we're learning more and more there are probably some underlying predispositions to forming diseases of all sorts, including cancers and sarcomas. Are people with sarcomas, for example, let's say you have a child who has Ewing sarcoma, is, is it true that his children um, may be also more likely to develop sarcomas? It, it, it does not tip the balance. These are lightning bolts. They, they happen. Uh, they are unlikely to happen repetitively in the same family. Having said that, every once in a while you encounter a family that is overrepresented in, in a disease. Well, every so often you get somebody who's hit by a lightning bolt twice. That's absolutely true, and I still buy lottery tickets, but this is one lottery I don't want to win. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how these sarcomas present. We've talked about the fact that they're incredibly rare. First of all, it's rare to have a, a cancer that starts in bone, uh, or cartilage or soft tissue, uh, connective tissue versus having one that has spread to bone from another site. And then uh, it, it's more it's unlikely to have those cancers as opposed to epithelial cancers. So how do they how do they present? How, how what symptoms do people show up to your clinic with uh, that make you think, hmm, this might be something bad? Well, first of all, uh, just as your clinic, most of the people that walk through my clinic door are frightened and anxious about what they're going to learn about themselves. They're generally triggered uh, to come to see me either because they've seen another physician who raised the question or concern, but primarily uh, the, the answer is a lump or pain. 
a lump that's increasing, I think, deserves a visit to your health care provider. Most of those are harmless. Similarly, pain that you cannot explain for other reasons that doesn't go away in a reasonable length of time, and defining reasonable is always a little difficult, but I'm talking about more than a day or two, uh, deserves attention as well. And again, I, I think one's primary care physician is the right place to start. I do think there's an advantage to relieving one's anxiety, and the majority of the time, there is nothing to be concerned about in the field of of cancer, but I, I, it, it bothers me to see people harbor that fear for unnecessarily long periods of time, and it also bothers me when people ignore symptoms that should be recognized as potential signals of something wrong, whether it turns out to be a cancer or a gallstone. Um, in, in our world at this point in time, Healthcare is important. And so if you feel a lump or bump that doesn't go away, you have pain that doesn't go away, these are warning signs that you should go and have it checked out. It might be nothing, but it might be something, and it's worth finding out sooner rather than later and having the problem addressed. That's right. I would like to stress, though, that a lump without pain doesn't mean it's, it's not a tumor uh, that needs attention. Absolutely. Uh, certainly in my field, lumps in the breast that do not cause pain are, are actually a little bit more worrisome than lumps in the breast that do. We're going to take a quick break for a medical minute. And then when we come back, we're going to learn more about musculoskeletal oncology, sarcomas, how these are diagnosed and treated, and what the future looks like with my guest, Dr. Gary Friedlander. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Gary Friedlander. We're talking about sarcomas, musculoskeletal oncology, these cancers that are pretty rare, that instead of coming from breast or lung or thyroid or colon, like so many of the cancers that we talk about, actually come from connective tissue, from bone or cartilage or blood vessels. These happen... And we were just talking right before the break about how they present. So if somebody has a lump or a bump or pain that is not explained, that doesn't go away, they should see their family doctor. But Dr. Friedlander, what happens after they see their doctor? What does the workup entail? What does that look like? Let me meld together the workup that might happen in part with the primary care physician uh, and will be complemented or extended when they see me. 
It involves uh, listening to the patient first and foremost, just like everything else we do, a careful history, and then a, a physical examination. In the case of a bone tumor, just focusing on that particular entity, uh, there may be a lump or bump, uh, there may not, and there may be some local tenderness, or there may not. Some form of imaging and or laboratory tests usually happen next. In my field, in orthopedics, we're likely to get an x-ray, a plain x-ray. doesn't hurt. It doesn't take very long, and the answer is available almost immediately in today's world. And that's very helpful. If that raises a suspicion, they, the, the patient may well get a different form of imaging that gives us far more information. That might be a CT scan. It might be an MRI. It might be an ultrasound. Uh, it might be a PET scan. It might be a variety of those types of tools. And when or if and when we're convinced there is a lesion, a, a tumor, a mass, a potential change that needs better definition, a biopsy is, is often required to come to a final conclusion. Not always. There are some things that are so characteristic on plain x-ray, they are of no concern other than understanding them. Uh, but, but if we are not in that situation and, and need more information, the biopsy becomes very, very crucial. Today, those biopsies are often done with a needle. They are in our institution, and I literally mean yours and mine, uh, and many other fine institutions uh, that have that uh, ability. They're often done by our radiology colleagues, which just reminds me this is a team approach. They sometimes use imaging to make sure they're getting a sample of the right tissue. And then the pathologist gives us his or her opinion about what's going on. That's the chain of events that leads to the diagnosis. So, you know, we talk a lot on the show about biopsy, and, and I'm sure our listeners can understand, you know, a biopsy of a breast or a biopsy of a colon, even biopsy of muscle. But biopsy of bone, how do you do that exactly? I mean, the bone is a hard thing, and you're trying to put a needle into a hard bone. What you're trying to do, and the instrumentation gets better and better all the time, is literally put a drill into the bone. Ah. And these instruments are sharp enough that they can be done by hand or they can be done motorized, if you will. Keep in mind that pain nerve endings exist in the skin and they can be eliminated as concerns with a local anesthetic. And in bone, the, the only nerves are on the outside of the bone. And similar to the skin, uh, uh, some Novocaine injected in that area can make it completely painless or relatively painless. So these biopsies can be done as an outpatient? As an outpatient and literally awake and comfortable. Wow. Because certainly, you know, I, I think for listeners who are thinking about somebody putting a drill into a bone, uh, it's reassuring to hear that they can be awake and comfortable because term drill and bone don't generally 
sound comfortable. They they don't at all. And and I you're evoking an old memory for me, but but in my training days, we used to take care of kids leg fractures by putting them in traction in bed and in the hospital for days if not weeks or longer. And that traction was accomplished by putting a pin in their bone and pulling on that that pin. Um, And so I have done this to children with Novocaine and with great uh, interest in their health and their comfort uh, many, many, many times, and, and they tolerate it very, very well. So it is, it is not the gruesome ordeal that it sounds like, and I, I agree. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a closet hypochondriac, and everything I feel, I often imagine the worst, and that's why it's so helpful to get somebody else, a healthcare professional, to walk through these symptoms with you and explain what they mean whether whether it needs more attention or not. And so the biopsy is really critical uh, for many of these tumors to make a diagnosis. So once a diagnosis is made of a primary bone tumor or a cartilage tumor or, or a muscle tumor, um, a sarcoma, what happens then? First, first of all, and, and I try to make sure people understand this, it, it's far, far, far better to know what's going on than to ignore it. And the reason is that when we know, you and me, you and I, when we know what's going on, we we have a pretty good idea of what is available to make that person better. It doesn't happen every time. I wish it did. But the, the outcomes, the success of the things we have to work with today are enormously better than ever before. And so knowing what's going on is critical, and matching the treatment to the right problem is critical. Never hurts to know what's wrong before you treat it. That's what the biopsy does for us. If the needle biopsy doesn't work, a small incision in the operating room under anesthesia, one way or another, you need to know what's going on. Depending on what it is, the way it's treated includes generally, and we're talking about just for this example, that it's malignant, that it's aggressive. Mm-hmm. Most things are not, actually. But but if it's malignant or aggressive, the tools we have to work with are systemic drugs. Some of them are uh, chemotherapy. Some of them are immunotherapy, a wide variety of systemic treatments. These treatments go everywhere in the body, whether we know there's a tumor there or not, compared to what you and I do every day, which is targeted surgery targeted on the lump or the bump, or irradiation, which is targeted to the lump or the bump, or both. Excising a tumor requires an envelope of normal tissue around it. That envelope needs to be thicker as things get more aggressive. We can I'd love to talk a little bit more about what the implications are in terms of uh, of whether that leads us to an amputation or a limb-sparing resection. Um, but, but for now, the diagnosis triggers the team getting together and deciding which modalities in which order are likely to provide the best outcome for that particular individual patient. So frequently, this will involve more than one specialty, uh, systemic therapy and local therapy. Um, 
So tell us about the local therapy and surgery, because I'm certain that people, when they think about bone cancer and then they come to see an orthopedic surgeon, they likely are very worried about losing a limb. Absolutely. Let's use osteosarcoma as an example. That's a primary tumor that starts in bone, very often in children or young adults. Through careful clinical trials in the past, we found out that the outcomes are better if the next thing you do is treat them with chemotherapy, systemic treatment. It treats the primary tumor, and it also treats those small numbers of cells that are roaming around the body looking for a place to metastasize. When that neoadjuvant treatment is done, I, as the surgical member of the team, need to decide whether I can remove the tumor successfully without removing the limb, and I must say in 90 to 95% of the time, that's possible or whether an amputation is the safest, best way to get rid of a problem and get somebody back to their activities uh, and life. Um, uh, and there are times when that's very important and, a, and the right decision. What I'm trying to do is understand the relationship of the actual tumor to the surrounding functional tissues nerves, arteries, veins, to a lesser degree muscles. Muscles are very redundant. We have lots of muscle in our body. We can actually move muscles around a bit. They tend not to be the limiting factor. It, it, it's really the nerves in particular because we are not very good at reconstructing nerves that have to be removed to get rid of the tumor. We are much better at replacing parts of arteries that may be too close to the tumor, and in that envelope of normal tissue that we need to get rid of the tumor. Job number one is get rid of the tumor. Job number two is put things back together in the most functional and pleasing way we can. So after you, the patient has had this systemic therapy and you look at things and you decide, yes, I can spare the limb, as you can in most cases, do they then need radiation? Um, you know, when we think about many other times, for example, in breast cancer, if you have a partial mastectomy or you have a lumpectomy instead of a mastectomy, you need radiation as another modality of local control. Does it work the same way in musculoskeletal oncology? Similar thought process, but, but usually uh, irradiation for bone tumors is, is not part of the usual way of treating them, in part because they're not as sensitive to the radiation as we might otherwise like. The radiation conceptually is making that envelope bigger, mm -hmm. thicker, wider. I'm in, And when we talk about tumors that start in muscle, for example, radiation is often a very important component to, to the treatment. Tumors that start in bone, not as important, and cartilage tumors in particular are not as sensitive to radiation as many other tumors. So the tumor is in the bottom part of the thigh bone, what we call the distal end of the femur. We take out the distal half of the thigh bone, and we can do that, and it can very, very effectively include all of the tumor that we know about. And 
can the patient then have an, a part of the distal femur reconstructed so that one leg isn't shorter than the other? I was hoping you'd ask that. Of course. Uh, one way or the other, we owe them another distal femur. As I evolved over 40 or 50 years, there was a time when we would replace that distal femur of the patients with someone else's distal femur. The way we use kidney transplants, heart transplants, lung transplants, there were generous families and individuals that would donate parts of their skeleton. These went to places called bone banks that carefully screened and thoughtfully took care of these uh, uh, anatomical uh, gifts and made them available to surgeons like me to replace the distal femur of a child that needed it after their tumor resection. Today, however, much more commonly, we have metals and plastics that we can use, just like we replace hips and knees and shoulders with plastics. We, we do the same with the defects of these children. Dr. Gary Friedlander is the Wayne O. Southwick Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation and Professor of Pathology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.